Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 73, with Tim O'Shaughnessy. Welcome to episode 73 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at TAdamMartin on Twitter. Quick note before we get going, if you're curious about the skip in sequence numbers from our last episode, that's because our last podcast was a halftime episode and those are now for community members only. You can join the community if you like at makersofsport.com slash community. If that does interest you, when you join, you'll get all future halftime episodes along with their transcriptions, access to live Q&As with future former and special guests, monthly Google Hangouts, and especially an invite to the Slack channel where they're there are representatives from a few NFL teams, a few college teams, uh, a couple brands in sports, Adidas and New Balance, and they're interacting now. So if you want to join again, that's at makersofsport.com slash community. Today on the podcast, I'm very happy to welcome Tim O'Shaughnessy to the show. Tim is a broadcast and motion graphics art director at ESPN, where he has been for nearly 10 years. Many of you might know Tim by his online moniker, Rusted House. During his time with ESPN, Tim has worked on some of the biggest broadcast properties in sports, including the 2014 World Cup, Mike and Mike, the NBA on ESPN, the Grantland Basketball Hour, and most recently, the ESPN College Football rebrand, just to name a few. Tim also spent a bit of time working with episode 62 guest, Michelle Cruz, who is now a senior art director at the New York Red Bulls. And she spent many years there at ESPN as a motion designer prior to that. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks for taking the time to come aboard. Thank you. I, I'm, really, I'm really glad you reached out. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, for sure, man. So I'm curious, Rusted House, that's sort of your online, uh, online brand. What's the meaning behind that? Where, where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, so I went to... Uh, undergraduate college at a place called Binghamton University in upstate New York. And mm-hmm. it's kind of in this sort of uh, somewhat rural area, but I had this early affection for those sort of one lane roads that would go on and on forever. And you'd see all these dilapidated barns and stuff. So um, just that sort of broken down old American aesthetic was something I always loved. So that's what I picked as my my website handle like a hundred years ago. Um and ever since I graduated college, I've, I've had that URL. I actually lost it once and had to buy it back from somebody. <laughs> oh, and that, was, that was lame. Um, but over the years, it's gone from being like a portfolio site to a blog. When it started out, it was a like a, I would go record live shows and bootleg them on my website. Yeah, um, you know, and, and sort of like have up uh, friends' albums and stuff like that. So it's kind of just become this depot of uh, creativity for me personally. Awesome. Awesome, and I'm sure it's uh, it's obviously easier to spell than your last name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to the other to thing. You. <laughs> yeah, I mean, coming up with cool URLs back when they all existed, like you could pick anything you wanted. Um, it was just hard to find something that was interesting. My name's terrible for people to spell. So, <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of funny as as a complete aside here. Uh, it seems like we've kind of gone back to that. Like we all started off on the internet as like I think my first handle was like Slim Slim Zero Six Two Four or something, and then uh, you, you you start to use your name, and now we're seeing people start to use monikers again. So you sort of rode it through the whole the whole time. 
Oh yeah, man. Once I once I find something I like, it's like my like I'll, I'll eat like one of four meals every day. You know, it's just like you stick with it. I'm all about <laughs> yeah. repetition. Yeah, no doubt, man. Well, listen, Tim. I gave a bit of a bird's eye view of your career at ESPN at the beginning of the podcast, but I'd like to give this. I'd like to allow you to take this time to give listeners a little bit more info about your career. What is your story sort of leading up to ESPN where we are now? Yeah, okay. I'm going to dive into that. Um, before I do, I just I kind of want to note how with with this part of what you do in most of your podcasts, I think it's great because you're giving, I like to think of the kids, the youth who are listening to this and trying to figure out how to sort of navigate through the ether of finding their way into a career. So this is always my favorite part. I'll try not to be boring because some people have some really good stories. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I think I'm sure it'll be fine, man. I've got I've I've done my I've done my due diligence on your on your past, so I've got some interesting things to ask about your career right, your past cool, as well. Yeah. That sounds creepy. Um, all right, so <laughs> I started off as a psychology major. Um, you'll have a lot of people on who, who work at agencies and deal with brands. And back when I was a kid, I always wanted to work in advertising, but I always wanted to come at it through a, a psychologist's mentality, something like human factors applied to design. But I didn't really have any idea how that would happen. It was like a hoop dream of what I thought would be a pretty cool profession. Um, I didn't know if it was real or if it was fake. So anyway, I became a, a psych major. Um, and I also love sort of, uh, I don't know, social understanding of situational behavior with people. So it all kind of worked out. My, my mom really wanted me to do something relatively scientific. So it hit all the parental check marks. Um, but the problem with that is I, I didn't, you know, as you evolve in that, in that sort of field, you learn that to do anything with psychology, you have to go through a ton of schooling and deal with a lot of statistical analysis. And that became a little boring for me. So when I graduated college, it was like, either I get a Either I get a PhD or I go work for a little bit. And when I went to work, I had a design skill set that I kind of picked up in college just by learning Photoshop. It was kind mm-hmm. of like a side thing I would do. So, you know, just like a lot of people you have on the show, I just sort of became good at Photoshop. And this was like 1999, 2000, whatever. Um, I'm 36, so that'll give some perspective to whoever's going to listen to this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I knew enough to get a job. And then, you know, I lived on Long Island. That's where I grew up. So, I would commute to the city and work at this financial publishing company designing websites for them. And um, I did that for a little while. Uh, moved to Brooklyn, and um, that's where I met my wife, uh, but we didn't get married yet. And then I ended up leaving the city to go to grad school so I could get an MFA because now it was like I was that guy who knew how to use Photoshop but didn't know how to get things on television and I thought that was interesting like how do you make things move and how do they go through a satellite and find their way into your TV um, so I went to the Rochester Institute of Technology which some people know as RIT um, I don't know if you've ever heard of that yeah I have actually yeah. yeah okay so I've, I've heard of RIT that's that's you know obviously the most common yeah 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 I think I've, I've followed some people that went there too. I can't remember. I've definitely crossed paths with it before. Some people that have been there before. Yeah, like I work with a ton of people who went to school there. It's kind of weird. Um, but anyway, so went there, got an MFA in sort of animation and design, learned how to use After Effects, learned how to use Maya, um, and that was my focus. You know, just sort of like animating and trying to figure out what I want to do next. I didn't really know. That's when I was, you know, sort of stuck with that early 20s, not understanding how I'm going to survive and find a career and like, you know, be an adult. Um, and then uh, I realized just like most people that I needed some, I needed some work and experience. 
So I was living in Rochester, and if you know anything, if you have a cognitive map of New York State or the United States, you know that Rochester is on a lake, and right on the other side of that lake is Toronto. And Toronto's a pretty good design city. So um, I just started doing my research and sort of trying to figure out who, what animation companies or design companies were in Toronto. And since I was like two hours away, maybe I could figure something out. Um, and then I started Googling, doing some work, and then I... Um, I found this one company called Ghost Milk. I, I emailed a bunch of companies, quite frankly, but there was this one company that did a music video that I love. Now, one of my favorite bands is Modest Mouse, and if you've ever seen the video for um, for the song "Float On," there's a pretty cool sequence in the tail of it where there's these sort of like uh, cameras in After Effects flying over this field. There's some farm animals and stuff, and, mm-hmm. and I anyway, one of these companies worked on that music video, so I just started cold emailing people, and one of and these guys at Ghost Milk I wrote and. They responded. They were like some of the only people who got back to me, and um, they were like, "Yeah, come on up, and we'll just sort of get to know you, and we'll figure it out." Um, so I went there, I met up with them, and then that kicked off me getting into sort of uh, into a motion design house where I can practice and kind of work on some projects with them. Uh, I was I rented an apartment. I was coming up there on during the week and working, and then coming home and, and going to grad school on the tail ends of the week and. I was kind of going back and forth between the two cities, and I did that for like eight months. Um, but it was cool. I got to work on some music videos and some interesting projects. I got to work in a real place where people actually made things for TV. I learned about JKL editing and how you, you know, how you, I mean, back in the day, to make a music video, you'd have to put it on a tape and then submit it through, this was in Canada, right? So you'd have to submit it through this Canadian, you know, film division, and then, oh, it's just all these weird things that you didn't understand about life or or art. Um, and then I did that for a while. And then I, I, you know, I graduated out of grad school. Um, I had the option to go work there, but I kind of didn't want to move to Canada. And then I was unemployed for a while. And then I got a call from ESPN and, um, and you know, I kind of went on this interview process and one thing led to another. And then I got a job at ESPN, which was like, you know, it's kind of like, uh, this crazy awesome thing when you're in your mid twenties and you're trying to figure it out. And yeah, no doubt, man. And where, did you grow yeah. up a hard, pretty big sports fan? Yeah. Well, yeah. So I'm a diehard jet fan. So that's mm-hmm. automatically going to make a lot of people not like me. Who listen <laughs> to this. Um, I'm a big Mets fan. Uh, yeah. I kind of grew up, you know, with like the Mets in the eighties, you know, that sort of thing. I didn't have a huge college uh, sort of, exposure you know mm-hmm. i think i was listening to uh mikhail's interview with on st john's and it's like yeah i remember the johnny's back in you know the 90s that, that's right. that was like the closest college experience we had you know yeah, but, yeah. Um, big nicks i remember where i was for you know lj's four-point play i mean all these things yeah so i've always been a diehard sports fan but also like a big music fan i'm kind of crossing both streams there um yeah there's an interesting uh, like intersection with music and and design where it's almost like a lot of designers are also musicians uh, or, or like, you know, they'll do that on the side or they're just super passionate about music. I mean, they design to it and they listen to and a, a ton of different music. And I think that that's where I am. I, I like to listen to a lot of music and um, I, don't, I don't know. It's like a weird, I don't know if it's just about the creativity that's involved with both and how it's like a different style of creativity with, with music as opposed to design and maybe the patterns that are involved or what it's definitely like yeah, a yeah. weird experience, an experience. Yeah, I yeah. I, um, like. I have a very interesting. I want to just add something to that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that happens all the time. They go hand in hand. You know, everybody. Some people need music to sort of design. Some people um, 
just love music. We all love music, but um, yeah, there's this crossover between like musicians and um, and people like people who play instruments and people who design. Now, working in sports, right? I, I'll have a lot of people at my place who don't necessarily love sports, but everybody you know goes to shows. Everybody loves bands, um, but I do think there's something about patterns you're kind of talking. Like, if you listen to you know, like 4-4 music or um, some bands who have off timings like Radiohead or Tool or something like that, and they'll mm-hmm. cut things in different beats. Um, I kind of find a relationship between the way beats will be cut and the way you might say like segment graphics. It sounds kind of nerdy, but when you're designing something and you've got like a million different parameters to make or motion beats, like you can have a timing of keyframe sequences that could sort of match a weird uh, drum beat sequence, and then all of a sudden that could be a pretty cool glitchy animation. And that might just work for one genre of motion motion graphics that you want to make. So there is this relationship between the two things because when you're laying keyframes on a timeline, it's kind of like looking at audio beats, you know? Yeah, yeah. Totally, man. And I, I mean, I think it all just sort of, I'm, I'm finding this, we'll get to it, but I'm finding this big sort of circle that really, you kind of come full circle with Rusted House and later when we get to some of the college football stuff that you guys did. But I do want to talk a little bit about Something that's intriguing to me is your degree in psychology. So I actually have another friend who is a, a creative that had a degree in psychology. He's a, a good friend. His name's Chris Radcliffe. Uh, he's, a, he's a photographer, Radcliffe photography, talented guy. If anybody wants to check out his work, it's radcliffephotography.com. Anyway, I use this guy for a lot of my photography, and he sort of has this uncanny ability to really pull out things in people that like this sort of like raw you know, like raw data or just like this raw personality and make people really comfortable. And and also even working with me, he's super level-headed and he he understands everything that I want, even if I don't really elaborate on it. And I feel like that comes from his psychology degree. And psychology obviously plays a huge role in the world of branding, brand strategy, obviously advertising. So I'm curious... Does your degree, and you talked about it, about it a little bit with human-centered design and that type of stuff, but how much does your degree affect what you do today as far as at ESPN and really understanding your audience and kind of having empathy and that type of thing? Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, I mean, I think it pretty much uh, defines a lot of my social backbone, you know, it's, um, what it really helps me do if I had to pick one thing and, and just dial in on it. It's like when I'm dealing with an artist who's trying to, you know, kind of conquer some design issue or, or might be frustrated with, with um, where we're at in a project or something like that. Um, it really helps me diagnose the situation, take a step back and figure out how I'm going to, commute to communicate to this person or articulate what we need to do to get through, to get to deadline, to get the project done or to kind of make them feel better about this moment. You know, because everything that you're doing in every big project that you're taking on is going to have a lot of different tentacles where things are going to jam up and things are mm-hmm. going to get tight and you have ebb and flow, right? It's just natural right. process. It's a beautiful thing. And, um, and being able to socially understand uh, how to handle that helps me get the best product uh, on the television and helps me get somebody to kind of perform their best. At least I think, you know, I'm sure if you pulled all right. of the people I work with, they'd all be like, oh, that's totally whatever, you know. But, you know, in my mind, when I'm working with someone and we're trying to really dial in on, on an element, you know, it's like I learn how to communicate and read and react to them and to articulate to them based upon the, the social information they give me. And I think that's where I call back to my degree the most. It sounds like you're saying your buddy's a great director and that's awesome. 
Yeah, totally. And and honestly, he's he's such a great just strategic mind. And and I think that that's something that probably you have as well. Just even viewing the work that you've art directed, you're, you can tell that there's always like a, a through line, a concept, uh, and that type of thing. So let's let's kind of give listeners just for people that maybe don't know exactly what it is you do at ESPN. I know we've been talking about broadcast and motion design, but are you so you're an art director? Are you in creative services? And maybe just kind of describe your role a little bit for listeners. Then are you actually getting the ability to execute design as well as? Art directed, yeah, completely, completely. Because, um, yeah, so basically, at a big company, just ESPN, just like any big company, has all these different uh, branches, right? Um, and I work in the broadcast branch. I don't mm-hmm. work in the magazine. I don't work in digital. I don't work in social. I don't work in, um, you know, edit. I work in the broadcast uh, area of ESPN, and it's called creative services, and we're primarily responsible for the majority of what you see on television, branding for each show uh, in terms of developing the logo system, creating all the animations, creating all the information graphics. Everything that you see usually that isn't a camera feed uh, comes from my department. So a lot of the projects that I take on, um, you know, from top to bottom, I am one of... Many people who are working on them, but in terms of the creative elements, uh, I'm accountable for the creative element, making sure it works, making sure it's successful for the director's uses, making sure that uh, that everything that we're doing is a world class product, and um, and you know I keep talking about motion because you have a lot of people on this podcast who do many different things. You know, you'll get people who are uniform designers, people who are logo specialists. Um, what I focus on is making large scale animation packages. For ESPN, so you mentioned some of my efforts earlier. Um, you know, like uh, we just finished college football, large package, probably the biggest one we have, maybe one of the biggest uh, in sports television. Um, you know, you mentioned the World Cup, another big package. All of these things take uh, everything from logo design all the way down to every single animation, every frame of animation, and um, I always kind of say graphics many times because you can never lose sight of the fact that. We have a lot of people who are busting their butts designing and, and crafting and coding tons of awesome graphics, full screen graphics, full screen info panels, lineup graphics, lower thirds, topic bars, the list goes on and on. All of these things are like their own little website. They're, it's almost like they have their own coding system and their own permutations and functions. They're all very high degree of difficulty elements. Um, so I kind of harp on that just to make sure that we, we let that resonate and how, how difficult all these little individual things are. But my whole job is to think of some ideas that, that I want to do with these packages and, and sort of help get my team to, to sort of buy in and create the best product possible. And, and as an art director, my job is to um, kind of con- convince people that these ideas are worth, uh, you know, putting some, you know, sweat into and and we usually come out with some great stuff uh how much i'm on the box is very situational dependent um i would say that most of the time i mean what i'm trying to do now and what i'm doing successfully now is not design things sort of like lead the idea charge and try to bring everybody who's on the project up a click with what they're doing in their job function um in the past there's been many things that i've had to design um many things that i've had to animate um, and sometimes, you know, I will do that, you know, I mean, if something right. happened tomorrow, like they, we, I just got an email a little while ago about something we may need by Friday and I don't have anyone to jam on it. So I'm probably going to tackle it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so it's always happening, but sometimes the reward is not doing that, you know, and quite frankly, it's at the point where I'm not going to find any personal validation by crafting 
the next great design and be like, look, guys, I just nailed that frame. That's what we're doing. I think it's going to be much better for uh, the company's growth and for all the employees' growth if if one of them is going to get that opportunity and make that moment to nail it because I'm kind of more concerned with the people growing and excelling um, than me at this point. It's, it's Yeah, no doubt, man. And there's that psychology degree coming back in, man. <laughs> <laughs> you think so? Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned logos, and I, I always logos in broadcast are always so intriguing to me. I've actually had a couple debates with people in the past about is this a logo, is this not a logo? Because you kind of get traditional logo designers, and they're like, "That's not a logo. It doesn't work in like two color or whatever." But I think there's something interesting about the broadcast world that you you can you ha- almost you have to create these very dynamic looking things that are heavily layered and and have a lot of depth and can can be animated basically are you are you guys thinking i mean obviously you're thinking in that form but are you also thinking when you're developing logos or working with companies that are creating these logos how to take that super detailed visual element that is the logo in broadcast form and simplify it to something say it's like a twitter avatar or so, or maybe yeah, like yeah, a one yeah. color thing no yeah 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 you're hitting on something really good um yeah i, I like this uh and I can totally see how some guys who are logo purists, like, um, you know, you have people who design logos for teams, you know, and they'd probably be like, yeah, wow, that's not, that college football, that doesn't, that's not even a logo. And so I get that, right? Yeah, like, what are the Pantones uh, of this? You know, like, yeah, that's yeah, sort of the mentality. Yeah, for sure. And then that's why you have such a, a wide breadth of people who are actually, you know, paying attention to what you're doing here, um, because that's stuff I, I usually don't even think of, right? I'm in a different paradigm of design. So, um, yeah, the things you you always want to look for, I have a whole theory on this, right? For one, you need a, a a great knockout logo, like just straight up black and white. It's got to work and it's got to work textually. So you can kind of read it. It's got good impact. It works large scale and, and small format for when we have to scale it down for bugs, which are like lower left or lower right devices. Um, and then you've got to take that logo and it's got to have, usually it's got to have a good casing, you know, um, I'll use our World Cup logo as an example. It's basically a text layout. In the word Brazil, we had like a texturized fill of a Brazilian flag with a crop, right? And then we took that, and we put it inside of a casing of a device. So now I have an animation device because I don't just want to fly text around. It's kind of uh, you know a little cliche. So I want to basically have a sub-function of my logo, which is a device that holds it, that's going to work well in a 3D space, especially if it's a 3D package. If we're in a 2D flat look, it's okay to not do that. But usually most of the things we're doing require a 3D camera and 3D application. Um, and then on top of that, I like my logos to have two other, one of these other two remaining things. Um, the device needs to have some sort of function, meaning at some point I'm going to be able to flip it and have it sort of showcase some footage, or I'm going to be able to have it sort of um, have a transitional move where if it turns around and comes out, I can map a team logo to it. Um, I, in some way, it's got to be a content holder. Um, and if it's not going to do that, what I want the device to do is have a secondary submark so I can use it as a stamp. Right, so it's either I want like a little secret logo within the logo, so I don't have to use the whole thing as a mark to brand itself, or I want it to become a device that contains some information. And these are some rules that I've started to put into my work that have been kind of working out for the last few years. Um, you know, obviously we did something like that with college football. We have that shape we call the face mask, which mm-hmm. we pull off of our big logo, and it's just like it's just a little face mask with ESPN on it. But it kind of now brands college football without having to write out college football. Um, and we're doing, you know, this logo, our marketing team released um, that we made for, um, so it's public, for the Euro package that's coming out in, in June. 
And that's got all, like the 3D aspect of that has many levels of function and device and callback to the host nation. There's a lot of beautiful things happening. So in sports logo design, I tend to think these logos need to have functions that are going to work for motion. That's my primary thing. Obviously, aesthetic is huge. Aesthetic, branding, scale, legibility, and various executions. Those things matter to me. The last thing I think about is merch. How is this thing going to print out? I'm going to have to figure that out later. Essentially, what we do is we design these logos, build them in 3D, design them in 2D, then build them in 3D and texture them. And then we make vectorized versions of the 3D versions. So I have an Illustrator file that's you know it's vectorized that you can print that looks just like the logo. We get it as close as we can. And then that covers my bases. Yeah, so it essentially has your vector logo. Like if I'm looking at the ESPN college football logo, you've got these sort of metallic textures on it. That is essentially, you've recreated that in, say, Illustrator and added gradients. And so now we're scaling that thing up and down and, and we're not losing pixels and, and that type of thing. Yeah, totally. Because I think a lot of people just assume this stuff is like Photoshop. And that, I mean, it really blows my mind actually that you guys are doing that in, in Illustrator. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And so, you, I mean, if you looked at the Illustrator version, you'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, I kind of see how the lines are thicker. I like to make the Illustrator version clearly done in vector, you know? And I don't right. use gradients in Illustrator or, well, I, you know, we had a, a wonderful designer make it, but, I, you know, we, I choose, prefer not to use gradients in Illustrator and just do a sort of like um, actual, like, I'm trying to differentiate between gradients. Not one gradient like, uh, you know, silver to gray, but bars of gradient, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Different levels, yeah. yeah. Totally. So yeah. kind of changing paths here, I'm curious your thoughts on, so we see a lot of animated animated GIFs are becoming, do you say GIF or GIF? I just got to know that first of all too. <laughs> Uh, I say GIF because you know, it's like in the late nineties, everybody, yeah, everybody said GIF. So yeah, that's how I am too. So we see a lot of animated GIFs, like it's the new hot thing on Twitter, it, it, not just in sports, but other industries as well. But uh, you know, especially in sports and social media strategies for teams, we're seeing them start to throw some GIFs out there. But a lot of times, they tend to be just like adding a couple extra layers in Photoshop and turning off a layer or two. Like let's add six players and then turn like these three guys off and then change the text. Nothing that I would really consider sort of like high level animation. I'm curious, yeah. what are your thoughts on that trend in the sports business? And then is there anybody that you've seen that you think is doing quality work, maybe in house in the, in the team world? Um, yeah. Okay, cool. So yeah, I don't know what to make of it because clearly it's sort of like the real time future of graphics, right? Sort of like social media streams with these like quickly loading elements that we can kind of populate in. And you are right. Some of them are sort of like on off. Yeah. Text over, (laughs) you know, invert, boom, boom, boom. And, um, kind of, Kind of, sort of like, yeah, so I guess we're in that phase where this is starting and people are learning about it. I think when people learn After Effects a little bit better who are making these things, I think when social media teams across, you know, um, across college campuses and across pro teams actually get a little more advanced with their motion skill, these things will become a little bit better. You have some schools who are doing that. Obviously, Clemson is a hero example. Um uh, so I'm kind of expecting like the people to get better at what they're doing here and kind of pick that up. Then there are some things that happen that people like intentionally make these, and I can't call out the right artist for this, but um, you know our digital team at ESPN always does this. 
these NBA gifts that are pretty amazing, like Kevin Durant, like, you know, kind of like flying through the sky. And it's a little like rubber bandy Kevin Durant's cartoon. And then it'll kind of loop and they're beautiful. And I'll be like, all right, so that's a real animator, like killing it on yeah. that gif. Right. Yeah. And th- that I see how that's relatable. Um, I kind of think like that whole like cookie cutter on off on off text move here thing that we're talking about like that's the simplest version of someone kicking something out really fast for the moment and I think as people get better those things will be cooler it's not going to up the game like a crazy amount but they'll develop templates that look really awesome that are kind of similar to broadcast quality ideally Um, so I hope that happens and then I'm also kind of looking at this whole industry and and questioning like all right, so how is this going to affect my career like am I just going to be making gifts in like six years (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think all of us are (laughs) The rate things are going right now. Well, it's are you? So we had a. I think I can't remember if you engage in this conversation or not. But there was a conversation on Twitter a while ago, in in sort of the sports, you know, the sports creative lot that are schools going to eventually hire animators as full time? I mean, in in building out this sort of in house agency model, do you think that'll eventually happen, or are we just going to have like SIDs trying to crank out, or or just graphic designers trying to learn super basic animation? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think what you're really asking is like, do we think that the budgets for these schools are going to expand to the point where they can have a staff, you know? Um, And it all comes down to whether or not they're, they're, they're getting, you know, they're bang for their buck on that. And I know how you feel about this. I think most of your listeners do. Um, (laughs) I I don't know if I am on the same page yet. Um, I'm trying to sort of understand if people are, people are always going to be slow to come around to that stuff for sure. Um, Especially in colleges, but I don't see why they wouldn't, because we all know that even the worst of these programs are banking tons. So um, some of the bigger ones, you know, I mean, you know, the Bama's, Ohio State's, the Notre Dame's, these, you know, 60 million profit programs. Um, like, in, in some respects, I really feel like they should be doing that. I think those who have stadiums that would have in-house graphics would probably be more likely to do it, those mm-hmm. with big jumbotrons and stuff like that. Because right. um, that's a whole other area of, of design that's sort of like not really publicized but explored. Um, it's getting a little bigger in stadium design, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like they're going to need animators for sure. They're absolutely going to need them. I mean, you can kind of tell out there who's who's just learning it. And I think a lot of the guys who are just learning it, guys and girls who are just learning it at these schools, um, I really encourage them to... to play with after effects for an hour a day. I think I, you know, I think I need to say aloud right now that anybody who's listening, you should start spending a half hour a day learning cinema 4d to advance your design repertoire. It's not hard. It will make you better. And I don't think you need to get a pro animator for these programs. I think if, if I took every SID in the nation and, and made them sit in front of a computer for a half hour a day playing with cinema 4d after four months they'd be pretty good you know right so it's just a matter of making sure that you're committed to actually trying to get better in that area i don't know if you necessarily need to pay for staff but ultimately i would love to see these people do that i would love to see these schools do that right you know like really staff up correctly yeah totally man i totally agree let's talk about your department a little bit more Uh, and i mean can you describe a little bit about your department as far as what types of positions are in there and obviously we know you're specifically in in broadcast, so we know kind of the types of projects that you're working on. But what's the dynamic like? Maybe working across brand. How many times? How often are you working across brand with designers and other departments? Because I know that ESPN now tends to have a lot of different segmented areas where you might have one designer over here in this area and and that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it is actively like that. Um, and that's where you know I, I was kind of alluding to this earlier. But big companies have it's like big companies have 
very big departments and these big departments are like big islands almost, you know, um, I call it the rain cycle. So if you're on one project, like if I'm on the world cup, I want to, I want to make sure that I'm communicating with the magazine folks and that they know what we're working on. And, you know, then maybe some stuff will work into their issue. Um, I want to make sure the digital folks know what we're doing in case it helps them. Marketing, sales, I've got to get all these people sort of intertwined. But at the same time, all of these individual departments, you know, they all have their own design teams. There's designers at the magazine who I don't know, but right. there's some really killer people over there, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, they've got sure. their own Yeah, they've got their own CDs and ADs who are killing it, you know? Yeah, Chin Wong actually was on the show. The, the creative director over there came, came on one of the earlier episodes of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, she's great. You know, she's she's an awesome person with a great outgoing mindset. Um, she's super talented, and you know, everybody. There's like all these factions, and and we we kind of don't always talk. You know, um, right? And I mean, the byproduct. I mean, it's it's not the best thing in the world, but the byproduct is, you know, we're all working on different product, and we're trying to, in some respects, link it up. Um, we're doing a better job of of communicating with each other, knowing who each other is now, but ultimately. We all have so much work that it's amazing that we get it done and then sort of like leave at the end of the day. Right. And everything moves so fast in this world. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It's more of a scalability issue than even like a brand issue, right? Because like you were saying, this happens, having sort of segmented off silos just happens in big corporations. I mean, that's just a fact. Yeah, it's 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 a byproduct. If you put this, you know, a ton of people in a room, they're going to break into different conversations. You have a dinner party, you know, you're going to have different conversations at the table, and and they're all going to have different threads. And you may all be talking about, you know, Trump, Cruz, Bernie, and Hillary, but they're all, you know, it's all the same topic generally speaking. But they're all going to be different sections, and you kind of want to just make sure that, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's having a good time. Yeah, totally. And I've read a lot about this. Just I'm, I'm sort of one of my additional passions is just like culture and specifically culture in the workplace and how can we as creative people affect it. And it's there are people doing research on this stuff, but it, it's just it hasn't been solved yet. It's just a it's something that's so big <laughs> that it's really going to take yeah. somebody, honestly, like an Apple. To come out because we don't even know how they do it. For all we, for, I mean, for all I know, they have horrendous internal policies. You know, we just don't ever hear anything about them because they're so secretive. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But for it's going to sure. take somebody like that that comes out and actually publishes their their strategy and 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 open sources it to the point where like, hey, this worked for us. You guys should check this out, and then maybe we could start to see some things change in some other other corporations. But yeah, it's totally totally a scale issue. It is a scale issue, um, and you just add to that real quick you know i mean the first thing you need to do is make sure that if you want to institute some change you've got to sort of work it in around a production calendar you know when companies have like deadlines every three months or different things on the project well you can't just all flip the switch at once um that's the biggest thing in my mind of trying to make sure that this stuff kind of comes together and i also just there's a, a moment where i wonder about the practicality of it you know like we always talk about trying to institute some more um, communal effect and change, but the the only thing, well, the first thing you need to do is make sure people have negative space and time so that they they have the ability. They're not overloaded. They have the time and the space to be able to sort of institute that change. Because I know where I work, everybody is doing so many things at once and wearing so many hats that we're all very busy, you know. Right. And, and I know you're very busy, and everybody who's listening to this is creatively very busy. And you need to find blocks of time in your day where you can really sort of like have 
almost nothing to do to think about and start to program and assemble change, which is like, you know, that's impossible. Yeah, man. You, you totally, it's, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor. It's almost like you're, you're in a car and you're driving on this on this constant trip and you keep telling yourself I'm going to stop and check that place out sometime right and yeah, but you just yeah. you have to keep going because yeah, you just you can't stop <laughs> yeah that's it yeah totally so let's let's do a little bit more of a deep dive on the work uh, specifically I read an article on espnfrontrow.com which is the for people that don't know that's sort of the ESPN internal PR website where they highlight employees and some of the things that are going on there. Anyhow, you were discussing in one of the articles your department's work for the 2014 World Cup, which was a massive project. I'm just curious if you could discuss a little bit of the scale of that project and maybe just give us some insight into what goes into something like that as far as planning and thinking about it, uh, how many people are involved on something like that from a graphics package perspective. All right, totally. Um, Okay, so... I think it was like 440 days out we started talking and crafting um just a sort of management team internally to project manage produce and and meet art direct um and then for a package of that scale we'll often pair up with a, a design company um you know and this is kind of something that in tv happens pretty often you know the old method is like uh, you know 20 years ago people would just call like a design firm and they'd make like you know their wimbledon package and they pick it up um we're at a point in time where at ESPN, I, I can't speak for other TV companies like NBC Sports or or Fox, you know, because I don't right. work there. But yeah, yeah. at ESPN, we have we have a pretty awesome internal team. We're we're incredibly talented and gifted, and we've got a lot of great animators and designers and a, a lot of unique minds, and we can do a lot of heavy lifting. Um, but we have a hundred thousand productions going. I think the thing that separates us that maybe people don't realize from other networks is that we are basically servicing almost every sport, even if we're not covering it. We're covering it. So the tournament, the tournament's done by Turner and CBS. We're not doing the tournament, but we're covering the tournament right. like basically every hour. You know, and, you know. So um, I say this to illustrate the point that even though we have a pretty big staff. Our staff is occupied for the most part. I know. So we have a, a, a lot of designers, a lot of great animators. On the World Cup, we had two designers and two animators, which is just basically not enough horsepower. Yeah. Um, so, so that's why we'll pair up with a company. And um, you know, it also is great to just bounce ideas off of people. Um, and um, it helps you break out of your own personal ruts and trends. I, If you look at my work, you'll see a lot of matte paintings. I'm really into matte paintings. I've always been into matte paintings. It's like a cliche of mine. So... Um, but we don't have we don't have any matte painters, and we needed a, that for the World Cup. So anyway, we paired up with with this company Prologue, and um, and we started to develop ideas over time, and um, we did it for about you know I think from the, I said four fifty or whatever we started to think about it. It was four hundred and ten days that we started the project out, and um, one of the things you've got to do there is if you're building a broadcast package. Um, the first thing you want to do is develop your logo ID. Our logo ID for the World Cup is basically we came up with the text layout, and then from there um, we came up with the rhombus. You know that was our device that holds the the logo, mm-hmm. and the rhombus is based off of the the rhombus inside of the Brazilian flag, and um, we broke it up into pieces so we could kind of do some rotation and counter rotation within it. So you had three cascading movements, which is great for motion, great for keying devices and stuff. Um, and then that kind of led us to a language of of developing some flag IDs on the rhombus and. Then uh, with our international soccer packages, I'm always in love with uh, country teams' crests. 
they're they're you know the different uh, squads crest like the French teams crest the German teams crest they have their own beautiful logos so um, uh, we always want to use those and make different team IDs for that so uh, you know essentially what I'm trying to tell you here is that um, through through what we need to do for production and what we wanted to do, there's like a, a million elements. We want we had five different types of versions for team IDs, and in sports design, a team transition, a matchup transition, and a text transition, like your second quarter or your like um, missed opportunities element. Um, those are basically the backbones of your transition that your uh, of your package that and your logo system. So we would develop all of those, and then we would figure out our ways to get in and out of break, of which we had. 10 and then we had to think of how we were going to basically get from our logo systems coming back from break and wipe to say a sponsor which takes every element you have doubles it by two um and then we had to out of these you know you have in the world cup of 32 teams times five different types of ids we had to do this for domestic for brazil and for all of our deportes distribution so it's like a pretty global look and that means we had to multiply anything that had a country name on it times three because we had to do it in Portuguese and Spanish. And then, um, and then I like to make stuff. So one of my problems at ESPN is that I, I like to make probably more than we need. I like to just kind of make cool animations, and then when we're done with those, let's make some more until someone yells at us. And then, um, you know, so I think for the World Cup, uh, our element reel at the end of the day, an element reel is basically like your product that you hand over. It's like it's like your book, um, and it's every animation you have that goes on tapes and hard drives and gets distributed to people who are going to use it. But our element reel was something like three hours long. Oh my goodness, man, that's crazy! Yeah, so that's sixty frames of animation per second. You know, you know, in three hours, that's a lot of animation. You know, we had a ton of stuff. It was it was huge, and and um, I loved it. It was I was really proud of of everybody's work, and I mean. Well, everybody who was on that project absolutely killed it. I hope that kind of explains. What, yeah, for what you're sure, man. For. And and you actually you mentioned in that article that one of your, your your goals was to provide viewers with a piece of art in every frame that they would want to hang on their walls. Is that mentality how you approach most of your broadcast projects? Because it seems like that that is uh, is there as well in the college football stuff. Okay, so the answer is no, but. Kind of. It's how I approach my soccer packages. Um, the World Cups and the Euro packages and the Women's World Cup package we did in 2011. These are things that I, I keep that mantra and I tie it to that. Like it's you want to pull it off of your TV and hang it. You want to be proud of it to that level um, because I look at those as opportunities where we can kind of get out of a sports cliche bubble. You know, right? We don't need sort of like a, I always my joke is like chrome footballs that explode. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 3D ribbons that like swallow the logo. Um, you know, so we can kind of get away from all the standard tenets of sports design and, and just make art, you know? That's what we're trying to do right now with our Euro 2016 package. You just want to make make really nice art that, that kind of breathes a little slower. All of our our all of our elements for, for uh, these soccer packages, I like to kind of make a second longer than every other sport. I think I can make that team transition uh, four to five seconds instead of you know, two and a half to three and a half, because maybe football needs it to be a little more impactful before we get to the replay. Where in right. soccer, it's like, all right, we're, you know, Bob Lee's going to talk about how the Portuguese team did today. You know, he's probably going to talk at this pace. So we can probably introduce that logo a little bit slower. And, you know, and everything just has a breathability to it, which I, I think is really important. Right. 
Well, how, how in depth, as far as like Photoshop is concerned, are I'm not privy to the, the animation world, even though it's in another lifetime. <laughs> I'd love to get into this stuff, but I'm talking as far as like the, the minute and super fine details in this work. And you, and you mentioned matte painting. So are you, are people actually, when you say matte painting, are these just basically your word for photo manipulation? Are we talking like people are actually painting out things in like 3d forms? Um, okay. So a couple things, first thing, half hour day, dude, cinema 4d. That's yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm saying, if I'm saying SIDs should do it, you should do it for real. (laughs) Everybody should. I'm not even kidding. Um, so yeah, in matte painting, it's, it's kind of like, um, more cinematic matte paintings, right? Like when you watch Lord of the Rings and those guys go through those two like ivory statues at the waterfall, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so it's that sort of thing. M-A-T-T-E, like in-depth, beautiful uh, paintings done by somebody significantly more talented than me that sort of represents an area. So for the World Cup, every team crest, we would put it in a matte painting in that country. You know, we'd find like a great, um, you know, German castle and like have the crest like coming out of the rock, something like that. Brazilian waterfall, stuff like that. Um, and and I'm really sort of in love with them. If I was talented enough, I would just do, do that all day. Um, so instead, that's interesting. You know, I, I want to kind of go stay there for a minute because you talk about having some of these landscapes, and I'm curious, just from a research perspective, yeah. How, how do you determine, is that something that just conceptually you guys in house are like, yeah, this is what we want to do. Or do you, are, are, how are you doing research on this stuff? Are you trying to find some, yeah. some recognizable uh, landmark in these countries? And some of these countries are, you know, obscure countries that, you know, probably it's oh, tough yeah, to yeah. find research on. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta dig deep and sort of, you know, find things that are going to be interesting. Like, like Uruguay, you know, Uruguay is a very flat country. It has a lot of lighthouses. It's known for lighthouses. It has one kind of definitive, um, landmark, which is this, this sort of, uh, these fingers that come out of this beach and it's gigantic and it's weird and it's creepy, but it's also kind of cool. That became our landmark, you know? Um, and then, yeah, so what we do is we, you know, you just find a, a, ton of imagery and stitch it together and paint and Photoshop and kind of make this beautiful thing that's got a million layers. And then there's this, it's a trick called camera projection. So you would kind of place uh, primitive 3D geometry in space uh, and then kind of animate a camera within like a 30 to 40 degree maximum rotational capability. And then you just project this different patches of your artwork onto this geometry and it kind of looks like it's it's in a fake 3D world, but it, you know, I mean, you gotta, you gotta keep that camera pretty simple so you don't give up the gag, but that's basically how it happens. Some other ones come together. Like, you know, you're going to play off Big Ben for the most part. Right. The U.S. is always a challenge. It was like, do we go Grand Canyon? Do we go Freedom Tower and Statue of Liberty? What do we do? Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it works itself out. That's awesome. So from a conceptual perspective, I mean, you, you, you tend to have a, a common thread throughout the whole thing. Are you guys, how do you sit down and just, really just come up with the the quote unquote idea you know cuz you guys are really pushing that through we're starting to we start to see that through line throughout and i've noticed that's a common just in reading about some of your your work and your interviews or or articles about your work that's that's a a through line for you yourself yeah yeah so are you asking in relationship to like one particular type of package like a through line for a package uh no just in general like wh- where the idea comes from Essentially, oh, like in okay. those beginning phases, where it's like, all right, the fa- the moment you decided to even do the landscape, say, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. All right. Um, well, I always loved the crests, and I always wanted to do something with them that was pretty big. 
um, you know, it kind of, you always knew that we always knew that we wanted to kind of blow them out in their environment. If you kind of watch a lot of sports um, packages and study them, you know, the, the, the regular gag is to take the camera low, jack up the focal length and make the logo feel super large. Right. Um, right. Which is kind of what we wanted to do here. Um, in this case, we were able to, you know, get the folks at Prologue to get one of their map painters to put together a particular frame with England in a hillside that sold it. It was like, oh, yeah, that looks dope. That's totally going to be it. And then from there, it was like, all right, well, is this production practical? How many of these are we going to do? And this is back of the Euro package in 2012 because that's when we really started it. If you looked at our Euro 2012 reel, you would see that we started the map painting thing then, and then we just kind of blew it out in 2014. Um, and that one frame is really the sort of indicator, but usually it starts with it starts with the you know like developing the logo system, developing the team ID, which we knew was crest based, and then you kind of marry the two. So again, if you look at the World Cup stuff, you have your logo system, you have your team IDs, which are landscape based, and then all of a sudden we we just take it to the next level and we kind of make like elaborate Brazilian map paintings where our logo lives within. Then you have a common language. Um, our soccer stuff up until now in 2016 has always sort of had a, a theme of trophy and logo lockup in the environment of where we're, we're sitting in. Um, and that's, that's been our brand. So, um, for, for those packages, it kind of just comes together. I think, you know, when you're starting a package, uh, every time you start a package from the ground up, you need to think of what your basic tenets of design are. Most sports packages rely on a couple of things, like um, right now, the tournament's on, the tournament package, right? It's relying on a big logo inside of a big warehouse with some mechanization and um, screens as devices for pods, right? Um, if you look at our Monday Night Football package, which is one of my favorite things ever created, it's, it's you know, inter-illuminated, beautifully textured glass logos in a dark environment that's based on sort of like a subway grid system, which is basically a skeletal system of divisions. Um, and the render quality is kind of the theme of the package. Um, so every sports package has a couple of different tent poles that hold it up. And whenever you're going to start something new, you need to define what those tent poles are. And you just kind of have to make sure that you're trending differently than what the rest of the landscape is doing. Um, so you kind of have to study the field and study your competition and you have to separate yourself from your competition and you have to not be inspired by your competition to ensure that you are not being redundant derivative or, or sort of, you know, copying, which is like something that happens constantly in right. sports TV. Right. And I actually, this is a, this is a perfect segue as far as separating yourself from your competition. I want to talk about the 2015 college football season. And I, for, first of all, a couple shout outs. I mean, you guys, I, I freaking love, that whole package. I mean, the, the landscapes, I think it was just genius. It's, it's totally a, an Americana type feel, which, which really sort of circles back to what I was saying earlier and your, your whole rusted house, you know, brand online and sort of the things that aesthetically you appreciate. Uh, Loyal Casper did the work with you guys and I'm um, shout out to them. Their work is off the charts, good. Actually, Absolutely. completely fun. Diff- aside, uh, off the top of my head here, I was uh, back in 2012. They reached out to me about doing some freelance for a pitch, and at the time, I was actually at a technology company, and and I just couldn't. Basically, when I got the information, there was an NDA I needed to sign, and because I was at that company, I needed to make sure that I ran it by 
an attorney to make sure that I wasn't signing anything that's going to screw me over at that particular company too, right? It's where I'm <laughs> sort of screwing two companies here. And we just, we, we just couldn't make it work with some other things that we needed to strike out or whatever. And, uh, but anyway, man, that, that total, total bummer, man. I would have loved to work with those guys. But anyway, that case study. Do you, do you know what the project was? Uh, so uh, this is where it gets kind of funny, man. So I was told that it was for a big sports network. It was for a pitch. And this was yeah, 2012. Yeah. And then so this stuff came out and I'm like, holy crap, dude, what if this was what if this was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's <laughs> so funny. I'm like, that's dude, funny. total bummer. But uh, but anyway, yeah, I've I've sort of stayed watching their stuff. But anyway, as part of that case study, the the visual language of the graphics package uh, uh, of graphics packages in sports typically fall between frat house culture and then the whole techie futuristic stuff like I know you won't yeah, probably yeah, say yeah, anything yeah, about yeah. it but yeah. the whole like Fox Sports NFL stuff robotic whatever um, to- yeah totally totally get it and I yeah. would say stuff about it yeah I have no I have no qualms discussing other other networks okay they, yeah yeah <laughs> as much as, as as someone might do something bad they do something great like I felt really bad for Fox when the truck went dark during you know the, the Mets Royals World Series game one yeah but like you know, but when the truck isn't dark, they put on a great broadcast. So, so one thing I was reading an article. It, it was on a website called The Brief, which is a, a, a Proxima BDA publication, and I'll put a link for that in the show notes for everybody. But you mentioned in it that your goal was to steer away from design crutches that have become commonplace in the college sports landscape. Can you elaborate a little bit on that for listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first things first. Loyal does great work. Um, they're great people. Um, the the landscape road to football nation is uh, generated by um, Jeff Bailey, and and I think what what we did is we kind of like you know worked with them to blow it out to make sure we were covering our geographic bases and to get that that sort of aesthetic that you see that that Matt painted, but like down the road aesthetic right into it. And you're right. It kind of like hits all these things that I was discussing earlier that I really enjoy visually. Um, so a lot of beautiful stuff there. Um, but, uh, I totally forgot your question while I just riffed about that. Yeah, no. So on, in your article on, on the, oh, brief, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the whole the com- separating from the thing. Yeah. Design yeah. crutches and commonplace visual language. Yeah, and yeah, for sure. Um, and that's kind of it, you know, I mean, Oh, college sports, right? It, what do you have? You have like floorboards and and um, basketball uh, nets, and and you have a hundred and twenty eight D one two D logos you've got to use, and and everybody kind of is, is doing the same thing, with the exception of NBC Sports covering Notre Dame, which is basically like a a very isolated like six games a year look that's you know got big booming logos of one school so um for us we wanted to do something that was going to be totally different for me i was very concerned with trying to blow out the 3d logo system like why can't we do 3d logos for college yeah i understand we have to do 128 of them and that's relatively impractical but <laughs> at the same time if we find a system that's not that complicated, if you look at our logos, they're not super detailed. They're just sort of extruded and well textured and beveled and lit. Um, you know, so it, we had to come up with with a logical system for everything. Um, and by getting away, you know, and this is really like a call out to the guys at LK for pointing out sort of the, the case study of the frat house versus the engineering department. You know, sort of the mecca sports world. Um, and I should tell you, every time we do a package, the first thing I do is I make a book with things that we don't want to cover. Yeah, you know, it's like here are the don'ts. You know, there's like eight things happening in the world right now that we want to stay away from. 
right? Design wise. And then that mm-hmm. eight things always changes every year. But, um, in this case, you know, um, those guys made it a mission to stay away from the stuff that we had done in the past, you know, the frat house look that got blown out by other people. And then, um, and then also like you, you study your own product, you know, we had limitations with the previous look. It only extended so far. A lot of, you have 32 games a Saturday that were aired or a week, including Thursdays and occasional Tuesdays and the Mac and the whack. Um, you, you got a ton of, of, of hours to fill and we were just bumping out with the same stuff every, you know, every year. And then, um, the, the package didn't stretch well enough. So we knew we needed legs with this. Um, and that was sort of one of the driving factors. And then, um, once we had the road idea in play, it was like, okay, yeah, this is going to build, this is going to build itself pretty fast. Um, and then obviously you being a Kentucky fan, you know, you're going to care about what your region looks like. Yeah. You're going to care about how I'm using your team's logos. Um, and then, you know, I, I also, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was introduce all of the different various logo possibilities that these schools have. The school's logo slicks are, are beautiful and rich. You know, you have primary logos, secondary logos, word marks, textures often, knockout logos. Um, you go back through old historical logos, you know. I mean, you can find a lot of really great stuff there to celebrate a brand. Um, so... I mean, we wanted to get all that stuff in there too. Um, and then, um, you know, this guy Jeff at LK came up with this sign structure system that was just, it was like, oh yeah, that's going to work phenomenally. Um, and then from there, it basically becomes like uh, us figuring out how we're going to articulate every element motion-wise, sort of determining how the motion theory is going to work, which is one of my particular uh, strengths is like, um, you know, you can design anything, but I'm, I'm going to help us figure out a way to make it move, right? Right. Um, and uh, I don't know, you know, that package also has like a million different logo systems that it needs to hold. We have college football, primetime Saturday night football, um, regular college football during the day. We have a different, anim- like a whole different animation package for the Saturday night games. Um, and then we have the playoff stuff, which needs to be elevated, and then the national championship stuff, which needs to hit another level and now I'm just rambling. No, dude. I mean, I'm I'm completely fascinated by this stuff. Like uh, the case study, the full case study, which I'll put a link in the in the show notes, is on Loyal Casper's website. And just kind of clicking through it, uh, I remember when this came out. And and as someone that's not privy to animation, but that that does pay attention to little details in Photoshop, just doing like some photo manipulation and stuff myself, I'm looking at this stuff and I'm just I'm blown away, man. This stuff is so well executed, and. And I love the small details where you mentioned that sometimes it's in the middle of the day and sometimes the game might be at dusk and you'll see a little bit of the sunset happening. Like that stuff I absolutely loved. And I, I even remember, like just looking at this stuff right now, it, it absolutely makes me miss college football. I remember seeing this case study and then I remember watching some of the last games <laughs> uh, before the season ended. And I remember thinking, man, I'm going to miss seeing this because <laughs> it's, it's something I that I literally like, I fell yeah. in love with it, dude. Yeah, it's, I, that's that's um, I really appreciate that. You know, as somebody who I know is, is a college sports fan, I think that's that's really great. And um, you know, I really want fans to look at it. And you know, when they're watching TCU play and they see us bump to break with the TCU sign on the left, and it's got you know like oil rigs pumping, and then on the right we've got you know. You know, I don't know a Big Ten team. Let's let's say like in Michigan, and you've got a little lighthouse on a lake. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, those are the things. And and you know, the this is where we kind of go a little crazy. If you turn if you tune into a game after six p.m., 
you're going to get a night sky and everything. If you tune in from noon to six, you're going to get a day sky. Like, you know, with a little bit mm-hmm. of, like, uh, blue and orange hue. And if you tune into game day, you're going to get a bright blue sky, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, I'm an outlier in that, like, I'm a designer, and this is th- these are things that we look at. But I'm, I hope that people do look at this stuff and, and pay attention because it's, it is art, man. I mean, it's like you were saying, this is just looking at the stills of this. Man, it's fantastic. So I'm curious, are you... Do you go ahead and animate and and build out three D uh, the three D designs for all Division One teams, or is it just you have ESPN's production schedule ahead of, ahead of time and you just sort of no, try no, to this stick is, to that? This is, this is the coolest part, right? So first of all, I'm not animating any of this. This is like super much more talented than me three D animators that we have killing it. Um, and for those who are three D nerds. Uh, most of the packages built in Maya, composited in Nuke, um, and we had um, a, like a, a brilliant uh, mind here, a great animator, develop a, a back-end system where um, we would basically pre-render every team side by side. But it, it's sort of like you can go into into his file and type in tricode, and let's say type in WIS, and it'll auto-populate Wisconsin on the left and the right, and then um, we'll render out every team on the left and the right, and then we'll have mats. So when you need to do Wisconsin versus Penn State, you just kind of like lay a, one layer over with a Luma mat, and, and then they just kind of auto-populates itself. So, um, yeah, we built every single D1 team because you needed to have a system where um, you can, you know, every few weeks kick out the next three weeks of matchups. We don't do them all at once because it would be too much file space taken up. And then um, the real... Thing that we have to jam on every week is the Saturday night football games. Obviously, aren't announced till Monday. You know, sometimes Sunday night. So uh, we have to we have to come in on on Mondays and sort of crank through. Like, all right, so you know, Herb Street's going to Michigan State for Oregon at Michigan State Week Two, right? And then we'll have to go through and sort of jam through all of those elements. And we've got twenty different matchup elements. Whenever you watch sports packages, it's important for you and all of your viewers to sort of take note of where you'll see matchup based elements. Once you see a matchup based element going to break or transitioning within the game, um, it tells you that the people who are working at that sport uh, are making much more stuff than those packages that don't bump out with matchup stuff. If you don't see a lot of matchup stuff, then you know it's just general package usage site to site. But when you see matchup stuff, it's sort of like you want to put matchup stuff everywhere you can to customize the game. Directors and producers usually want to use that more often. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just something to look for. It tells you who's working hard. That's why I respect a lot of the hard work done by the folks who are putting together this tournament package because you know every single game when they go to break they're using a matchup transition even in the the round of 32 you know which is like they've got to crank that stuff out fast so yeah. there are a lot of people working hard somewhere well these the tournament the tournament uh, and then also obviously this project this football project was was huge i mean the enormity of it is no secret and you actually touched on it a little bit in that in that website brief that i mentioned earlier Loyal Casper yeah. has on their case study that there were 70 artists working on this, 36,000 man hours and 80,000 hours of rendering. So I'm curious, like how your team and their team, how do you guys work together? Are there any, are you, first of all, are you in Bristol or are you in New York? I'm in Bristol. I live in, in a rural town in Connecticut. Okay. A bunch of farms. Okay. I wasn't sure because I knew that there were some uh, creatives up in New York or maybe they've moved now. We have a yeah, we have a marketing slash sales team in New York, um, in a building in New York, and we have some folks who are. Did the digital team used to be up there or something? Um, Maybe years ago. Now they're in Bristol. Okay, magazines in Bristol too. Okay, 
but you're asking how we worked with LK on this. Yeah, um, how did you guys? How did you guys collab? I mean, how did that work? Like from a, just a project management perspective, were was there, had you ever done anything like this? No, no, no. I don't think anyone ever has. It, it was a crazy undertaking. Um, I would be really surprised if there's a sports package that's even close in size out there. Um, we our internal uh, team developed the nuke pipeline and the coding system um, and we would pass over tools to them. So it, it truly was like a, a group project. Um, and they would develop uh, a lot of rendering quality and a lot of animation and then we would also sort of like, you know, we would tweak some textures and send back to them and update and be like, oh, let's make it look like this. And then, you know, they'd have some refinements. Um, they would do a lot of motion and we would do a lot of motion. It's truly a split. The Blue City package, they did some style frames for um, that, that set off the look. We animated and, and built out the world and did every element solo. Um, so the division of labor, like they're, they're totally right that, that it took all that time. And that's not even counting really the time that we put into it. And it took us 18 months probably to build it out in earnest. Um, that might be excessive, maybe more like 14 or something. Um, but the way we went about it is we started the project and then we had to, we had to design and animate, deliver the, you know, college football playoff. So we launched it with the first college football playoff. Um, and it was fine. It looked okay. Um, and then we got our, you know, everything in gear for the regular season. We spent three months building out all the logo systems and then nailed the regular season. And then as soon as we launched the regular season, we started the college football playoff and somewhere in there, you cut the cord with them, right? Like we gotta, we gotta go, we gotta go. So, um, but you know, like they did a ton of rendering and a ton of R and D. Um, and, but I, I do think a lot of our pipeline, uh, toolkits were like incredibly helpful, but to be honest, there was really good communication between the two teams. Uh, um, they were a delight to work with on this, and and whenever you're going to get into sort of a project like this, you know, you got to make sure that your team is ready to go, their team's ready to go, and everybody's just excited for it. And with something that's awesome like the college football playoff and sort of rebranding college football at large, you know, and you know how much college football ESPN airs. I mean. There's no cooler project. It was so great. Right, right. And one thing that I want to touch on that I would imagine is probably not typical in one of these projects is you guys actually built out a custom font. Yeah, okay. So, that, yeah, that was, um, you know, something that Bettenbacher has put together from LK. And, um, yeah, it's it's this font that we only use on college football. Um it shouldn't be used in any other sport at ESPN. It shouldn't be in anyone's hands anywhere on earth. And it symbolizes college football. And quite frankly, like, you know, every time we do a package, we try to have a font family of somewhere between two and three, two, three, maybe four, if you need two fonts with Mike and Mike, we did, you know, five because it gets a little wacky. And for this, we're only using one and we have three weights. And if you don't like them, tough then, luck, <laughs> tough luck. Is this That's the first it. time you'd ever done a custom typeface for something like this? Yeah, it's the first time I've ever dealt with it. You know, um, I think it's, it works for us in a number of ways because it, it gives a little more creative ownership. And obviously, I think this one has some some uh, visual recognition after time. You kind of pick it up. Um, but I don't always think that's the right way to go. I mean... I yeah, mean, yeah. It's probably specific to project. I'd imagine from a licensing perspective, it's probably even better to do it this way as well, too, because... You're gonna have to put licenses, font licenses on different people's computers and that type of thing. Yeah, I mean something like that, absolutely. Um, but you know, I heard you talking about tungsten recently, and like 
I love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I love I've, I've used that on three different looks. You know, so. <laughs> I've been using I've been using it a lot. It's great, man. It's great. So, so I'm curious, whatever works for the moment. Yeah, yeah. What's the What's the atmosphere like leading up to a big launch like this? Are there is there nervousness, excitement in the air? Is anybody? Is there ever a time where people come in and just thrash things the last minute? Like we need to change all these things up, and you're just like, no, we 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 can't. You know, it's not the launch. Like I think everyone is everybody gears up for launch. It's when you're um, in the mid season grind that maybe you get some wear and tear, right? Uh-huh. Um, and that's always going to happen. Long packages are really tough. You know, you you've got to find your reset button, and you've got to find a way to re-energize the crowd and kind of uh, keep everybody rolling. Especially when working on something for this long. So there's no doubt that that long projects can wear you out. But um, no, I think in TV you you do there's there's a couple phases. You know, if you're a TV person, um, all TV people that you ever talk to are problem solvers. They all try to just basically solve a problem. People in control rooms try to solve the problems. People who are on graphics try to solve the problems. And just like uh, just like that, the designers also try to solve the problems. Um, so where I'm going with this train of thought is, you got to remind me. What question again? Um, just like the approval processes and like the excitement that builds up before and, and are people coming in kind of last minute to thrash the idea or cha- make changes last minute. And you mentioned it happens maybe mid-season sometimes. Yeah, essentially when you're building packages of this size, at some point you stop worrying about design and you start worrying about delivery. So let's say you're eight weeks out. You're like, okay, we got to start to tighten all the reins. We can't keep making new elements. I know that that one text transition, I'm not in love with the camera move and there's a hitch at the end, but we're going to have to cut bait and go because we've got to make other stuff. Uh, Or we've got to tidy up the package and start doing QC, right? So at some point you get into perfect delivery mode. And that carries you through launch. You don't stress out and want to thrash and break things, but you start to get into the zone of like, oh no, we're going to deliver this perfectly so that when it airs in 30 trucks at once, everybody's educated and you start to go into education and implementation mode. And that's when you, you know, that's when you really, you get the fatigue after that. You know, you get through that, you're excited, you launch, it's great. This year when we launched, um, I think I traveled to, Montana to do the Montana North Dakota State game on a Saturday. It was week zero, where all the games started the next week. TCU Minnesota on Wednesday to educate that crew. Down to Dallas to do Bama Wisconsin, and you kind of fly around and you get all these crews set up. And we had people at every site, so you know if I was doing it in one site, someone was doing it somewhere else. And then um, that's exciting. You don't you don't get freaked out at that point. You you. You're like you're pumped for it. That's what you've been right. working for. Yeah, you know. Do you watch Twitter or anything like that during the the initial push in the beginning? You kind of see like are people saying anything about it? Um, yeah, I used to do that. I used to do it more. You know, I used to really care. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think you kind of it, when we all were sort of in love with the fact that we can get real time feedback on something, and then after a while you're like, oh, this is now the norm, so it's not as exciting. Yeah, right. Um, right. Yeah, it goes away. But there are definitely times where, and if you follow me, you know this. Where I'll be tweeting during a game, you know, yeah, with things that are on screen, and I'll sort of if for those who do this, I'll, I'll break down how that element was made or why it was made or or you know, well, like how many permutations of that that are happening that you don't know about, you know. Um, I think that sort of stuff is interesting. And, you know, I, I only kind of roll on Tweet Street for those who are interested in 
sports broadcast stuff. You know, there's mm-hmm. nothing personal coming out there. So if yeah, you are yeah. on my feed, you might be interested in hearing about some of that stuff. Yeah, totally. Well, I do have a, a couple of kind of last minute questions before we wrap up that are a little more just kind of technical. And, and these are things that I'm just genuinely interested in. And then also I've got a couple of people in a community that have asked a couple of questions. So one being, I'm curious as far as the assets that are delivered from like a Photoshop perspective, what are we looking at here? I mean, are we looking at like multiple gigs of, of, of a file with, you know, a thousand layers or something like that? Or are we just like many, many different files? Um, it super depends, right? It depends on what element you're talking about and how you go about it. For some of my map paintings, um, that we have on different elements, uh, say World Cup style, yeah, you're talking about a, a really killer Photoshop file with thousands of layers. And from there, I mean, we're not really using the Photoshop file for much there. We're using the base art and breaking it out into different sections. Um, but if you're talking about, like, let's say the NBA Finals package for 2015, you know, I mean, there's just a handful of style frames designed, you know, by a great designer in one week that really just let us riff in 3D. And then we're trying to recreate it from scratch in 3D. Um, that's something that happens. For insert graphics, which is, you know, maybe 50% of our work, you know, and there's a thousand of them. Um, and then by insert graphics, I mean things that hold information like names, scores, scoreboards, um, full screen scoreboards, you know, tickers, all that stuff. Um, those are basically Photoshop files designed out that are just, you know, seven megabytes, 20 megabytes, 30 megabytes. Sometimes if you have a, a million graphics in one, 200. And then in there, we try to recreate those in another application that'll build real-time graphics. Um, so it varies element to element. To answer that question accurately, I'd have to sit down with someone, look at what they're talking about, and then I could break it down for them. Yeah, yeah, totally. So what uh, I did have one question from the community that someone was curious what machines you're running off of. Expression, uh, Chiron, looks like. yeah. Okay, so Chiron is a word people use. It's like calling a tissue Kleenex, right? Because Chiron is a kind of old font machine or a uh-huh. different brand of font machine. Um, it's like saying a font, you know? So no, we use a, for Instagram graphics, we use this thing called the VizRT, which is basically another type of player. I think Chiron is more of a 2D player, and this is a 3D system mm-hmm. um, that plays things out in real time. That's for anything you see on screen that's holding like Hannah Storm's name or your Sports Center full screen info panel. Um, in terms of is this like like software like thing? like um what kind of PCs we have or something like that? Says uh, so I was just asking I was interviewing you later tonight. Does anybody have any questions as far as like the broadcast design perspective? And this this question comes from a guy Jordan Geisler who actually is a designer for the Kansas City Chiefs. He asks what machines they are running off of, and then he lists those two, and then how many CG operators are you using uh, as far as like these graphics packages are concerned. Yeah, okay, cool. So that comes down to division of resource, right? Um, so on college football, we had three full-time Maya guys who were doing Maya and Nuke, um, killing it. And on World Cup, we had two animators. Um, on, I'm trying to think of stuff I've done recently. Right now, um, we're building Euro with one animator, you know? Um, we did Mike and Mike with two animators, two and a half at times. The guys are using, in PCs, we use Z800s. Um, and they're pretty jacked up. We have a pretty big render farm, too. Um, and everybody, most people use Cinema 4D, uh, primarily. It's sort of going that way. That's why I recommend you get into it. Easy for designers. Right. 
So Brian Gundell, who's actually he was actually the last guest. I think you mentioned you were listening to his episode earlier today. He he wants to know what as far as assets, how much of your assets are automated versus created by hand. Uh, does that make sense? Do you want me to? Oh, it totally does. That's yeah. a great TV question. Um, yeah. So there's two mentalities here, and and I'm gonna take it from uh, the perspective of a show production thing. Like if you're watching Sports Center, there's a million monitors that are being filled with content that looks like it's kind of customized design. If he's talking about that as asset versus automated um, yeah you have a lot of screens to fill on TV so it's not just about the elements that animate around it's about the things that are populating all these monitors right so if you're doing a show like I just did this whole Mike and Mike rebrand right what we're trying to do is give them a bunch of different options that they can build in the control room to fill their monitor needs so I like to make it so that in the control room We'll have some complex graphics that someone can build pretty quickly using some simple elements that'll look diversified and then of course you can get some customized elements too on the fly, you can call someone up. We can crank all this stuff out. Sports Center is more complicated. It's got more customized stuff. There's a hundred more monitors, you know. Um, so it kind of varies production to production. But in my mode of operation, I like to make sure that we pad things out in a way that people have a lot of uh, capability in the control room to make ease of use for the production team. Um, and then also, it allows us and the team back up the hill to sort of work on more um, long-term stuff. You know, than just momentary elements that are assets that are getting populated into a screen and then say going away. I think that's what he's talking about. If he's talking about hard rendered animation elements, most of the stuff we do is uniquely delivered, but sometimes we'll modify some things. Like if you have to do player transitions, you know, there's for college football, there's 580 million players that we've got to do an animation for to cover everybody. So right. we'll do a cool animation in 3D. We'll track it in that Viz system, which you know is sort of like that Chiron thing you were talking, and then we'll add the name and the image in that mm-hmm. system on top of like cool animations. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, yeah, there's a couple more, but I think honestly most of most of the questions you've really kind of hit on already throughout this episode, so I don't want to re-ask those. But I do have, just kind of wrapping up, I do get hit up a lot of times, and and even just me personally thinking about this, I mentioned it earlier, just designers that are kind of wanting to move into animation and broadcast design, but maybe they have a background doing Photoshop work, like Instagram images or schedule posters, print collateral, designing for social and that type of thing. How does one break into this stuff without having gone to school? And are maybe you, you did mention jumping into Cinema 4D 30 minutes a, a day, so maybe just some tips on where to start. And is it even feasible for a freelance broadcast designer to to make these detailed projects doing animation and, and all that uh, as an independent or is it is a team being a part of a team vital yeah 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 no totally um for one everybody should learn how to animate um you know everybody should learn how to animate in after effects and everybody should learn how to animate in cinema 4d anything is possible you don't need big teams to make this stuff i would stay away from um matt painting-based camera projection projects if you're running solo because you'll never get anything done. You need to find ways to sort of learn things and kind of make quick strides. Um, Cinema 4D, 30 minutes a day. Um, honestly, just get out there and Google Cinema 4D tutorials. Get get the application. I, it, it would take you no time to, to learn it. Don't be afraid. That's the biggest thing. People are afraid of software. It's foolish. Um, but you'll see like a lot of the people who are working on Instagram elements and working on flatter design and working on Photoshop stuff, you know? I mean, a lot of the flatter stuff that's happening just sort of lends itself to 2D shape layer animation and After Effects, you know? Right. If I was if I was getting into After Effects today, I wouldn't get into sort of like detailed pre comps. I'd start working on how to animate layers and shapes. Um, 
and uh, sort of figure out that language, this two-day world of stuff. I can kind of send you a bunch of links to pass on if interested, but people should people should really sort of get into these things because I see a direct relationship between flatter things and how motion's going. And I think even myself, I'm gonna you know I think I'm gonna try to get a little flatter and less detailed in some things in the next few years to to make sure that we're being production practical because sometimes heavy 3D renders aren't the simplest thing. But Cinema 4D has this feature called MoGraph that really helps you animate sort of shapes and layers pretty quickly. So a lot of the flatter 2D stuff you see isn't just After Effects, it's also Cinema 4D. I really think everybody should sort of get into that and and um, and just try to up your game. Never be afraid of it because this stuff is a lot easier than you think. All you need to do is put some time in and, and accept that you're going to fail a lot. And when when you fail a lot, eventually you succeed. Is, is, there, is there a certain package you recommend? I'm on, I'm on the Cinema 40 site now. You got like Cinema 40 Studio, Cinema 40 Broadcast, Cinema 40 Visualize. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the difference between all those things. Like, I just just get Cinema 4D release 15, or I think maybe they're up to 17, mm-hmm. and just roll. Get, get the whole thing. You, you don't want the one without dynamics or particles. You may not need X particles because I doubt people who don't use 3D are going to jump into particle simulations. But um, just get Cinema 4D. Start to learn MoGraph. Start to learn. Start to learn. That's an application in Cinema. Start to learn After Effects and, and animating and. And don't be afraid. You know that's it. Most people don't do it because they're just afraid to start. Right. It's the same way. It's the same way with coding. You know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, oh, and that yeah. type of thing. People are just totally. scared. You know, and it's like you have to make mistakes. You got to keep grinding away, and eventually, you know, it's like riding a bike. You'll you'll get it. I mean, there's still going to be things you're always going to have to figure out. I don't think any software or or code or anything that was the thing that was tough for me learning how to code was like. All right, where's the end? Where's the wall where you finally hit the end of Photoshop and now you know every single thing Photoshop does, right? And that yeah, is just not there in, in things like coding. It doesn't you know? exist. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> but it's crazy. All right, cool, man. Well, uh, let, dude, I really enjoyed it. There's a lot of things that, that I learned that I wasn't aware of for, as far as uh, the broadcast side. It's, it's, it's awesome stuff. And again, the work that you guys are doing is, is, is awesome, especially the work on your, your portfolio. Cool stuff. Why don't you uh, give listeners uh, your Twitter account and then your website and let them kind of follow up with you there if they want. Yeah, sure. Um, first things first, if anybody is has any questions or anything like that, you can absolutely reach out to me. I'm, I'm sort of a, a relatively normal human being who will respond to you and talk about workshop anytime. Um, uh, my Twitter handle is at Rusted House, and you know um, you can find my site, my profile there, but um, basically at Rusted House is where I'm at. So Very cool. Well, listen, man, Tim, I really appreciate your time, and uh, we will, uh, we'll stay in touch on Twitter. Absolutely. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Cool. My next guest is going to be Sloan Kelly. Sloan is a digital strategist and currently serves as the executive producer for the PGA Tours Digital Properties, where she's been for nearly three years. It's a fitting time of the year to have Sloan on the podcast to talk golf since we just wrapped the 2016 Masters. Sloan recently spoke on a panel at SX Sports about virtual reality. I look forward to talking to her about what the PGA is doing in digital as well as just the future of the game itself. Virtual reality is another medium we'll all eventually be designing for in in the near future. And so I'm confident it will be a very interesting conversation. Big thanks again to Tim O'Shaughnessy for taking some time to come aboard the podcast. As he mentioned, you can follow him on Twitter at Rusted House, or view some of his broadcast design work at rustedhouse.com. 
If you're interested in hearing more episodes, then head over to makersofsport.com slash episodes to check out previous interviews or listen to the original halftime episodes where I discuss business, entrepreneurship, and freelance in the sports industry. As mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, all future halftime episodes are only going to be available to community members. If you want to support the podcast, you can join the community, makersofsport.com slash community. There we have Q&As with future former and special guests, such as my trademark attorney, Will Montague, and our last Q&A was with episode four guest, Todd Radom. We also have monthly Google Hangouts, and you will get the transcriptions of halftime episodes in addition to the halftime episodes. One of the probably the best things about the community is the Slack channel. There's probably about 40 of us in there right now representing a couple different NFL teams, the NFL corporate headquarters, Adidas, New Balance, a couple different colleges, and some freelancers. We're just in there kind of talking shop and, and trying to get better as professionals and hold each other accountable. Again, you can join them by going to makersofsport.com slash community. I want to reiterate that this podcast is listener-supported and not sponsor-supported. If you get value from the content that comes from this podcast and its outlets in social media, email newsletters, or other areas, then please consider joining the community. I ask you that you vote with your hard-earned dollars to support the show by joining the community, and in exchange, you'll get the premium content discussed earlier at the cost of really just five coffees per month. For those that can't afford it at this very moment, or for casual listeners, have no fear. The interview episodes will always be free forever. If you do miss those halftime episodes and you can't sign up for the community, you can sign up for Weekend Reads, which is a weekly newsletter where I write exclusive content and share the things that I'm reading, things that I find interesting or inspire me for the week. In addition, on that list, you'll be notified in advance of upcoming guests and get podcast show notes delivered right to your inbox. By going to makersofsport.com slash email, just enter your email address to stay in touch with the happenings of the podcast and its future. Lastly, please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes. Hit the five star and write about your experience with the show. If you have enjoyed the episodes or a particular episode with a particular guest, then please share that show and go and rate that particular show so that others can discover that value for themselves as well. As always, I'll accept likes or ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast application you happen to be listening in. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. Make your